Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast, brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. Your farming challenges are unique, so your practices should be too. We're here to share emerging ideas, build connections, and provoke conversation. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm your producer, Kim Chase. And I'm your host, Monty Bottens. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us. Today, we welcome Dr. Don Rakowski. Dr. Rakowski is a retired soil scientist for the USDA ARS, North Central Soil Conservation Research Lab in Morris, Minnesota, and an adjunct professor in the Soil Science Department at the University of Minnesota in St. Paul. He has an exciting discussion with Monty about the foundational research he conducted back in the late 1990s, finding that tillage releases carbon into the atmosphere in sudden rushes of CO2 as soil is opened up. And now, more than ever, Dr. Rakowski uses his time to help growers know this critical information. Whether it's conservation agriculture, regenerative ag, or soil health farming, he says we've got to adopt these practices so we don't destroy all of our soil resources. It's a great conversation, so let's jump right in. Well, welcome everyone to this episode of the Ag Emerge podcast. I'm blessed to be joined by Dr. Don Rakowski. Uh, Don, welcome. I'm so glad you could be here today. Well, I'm honored to be here and, and hope that we'll have a, a good time and a good exchange. Uh, I'm interested in spreading my word a little bit, and I appreciate the opportunity for you to give me a chance to uh, be on this podcast and um, share a bit of what I've learned over the last 50 years. Well, that, that sounds good. So what you're saying is you're just getting started after 50 years of uh, in, in soil science, right? <laughs> well, yeah, according to some people. <laughs> well, it's it's great when we can have a soil scientist join us on this podcast. Um, you know, really everything that we do here is to bring new information to farmers to be able to make better informed decisions, really think about what they're doing with their farming practices and take the next right step uh, whether it's a, the right step in a practice or adopting a new technology, growing a different crop, approaching the marketplace different, changing your inputs, whatever that next right thing is for their situation, that's what we're all about. So, Don, you're going to share a lot of great stuff with us today. And I just would like for you to start with your journey and, and how you got involved as a soil scientist in the whole conservation agriculture movement, kind of what the genesis of that was and and some of the, uh, and the journey along the way of everything that you've, you've dove into. So take it away. Okay. Well, uh, I appreciate the opportunity. And if I get too <clears throat> long-winded, you can give me a frown and, and I'll, I'll stop talking. <clears throat> but I, but I started off as a uh, young child, uh, young kid in East Northeast Ohio, where my dad was a part-time farmer and a truck driver. And we were one of the first farms to put on contour strips. And I was proud to be able to plow on contour strips. Well, our neighbor that got us started on that was on the Soil and Water Conservation Board. And he had connections and indicated that I ought to go and apply for a trainee position at the Soil and Water Conservation District. And I was fortunate enough to get that position and have it for three years while and, and during the summer breaks and holiday breaks while I was doing my undergraduate work at Ohio State University. Uh, I milked cows for about three years, decided that that wasn't my um, forte and uh, the farm was too small for me to inherit. So I decided to go on and get a degree. So did um, two degrees at Ohio State in soil chemistry and, and a little bit of plant physiology. Then transferred over to University of Illinois for another four years. From there, I took my first job in Florence, South Carolina with USDA ARS. After nine years there, I transferred to Morris, Minnesota and uh, been here ever since. Uh, in that time, I did one year of sabbatical leave in Australia uh, on a, um, a fellowship that uh, was an excellent experience for me and the family. And so now I'm, I'm retired. I've been here for 15 years. I decided to not make the decision to chase my kids around the country. 
we're uh, retired here and we moved into a small townhouse and I spend a lot of my time on the computer um, doing PowerPoints, trying to educate. And so at this point in my life at 82 years old, I'd, I'd like to quote a, um, a, a writer from the cities. Um, what the heck is his name? I have, I have a little problem with the memory once in a while, but my, my goal and my mission in life uh, is to, I aspire to inspire before I expire. And so I'm hoping that I can educate you a little bit and anyone else along the line that's, that's interested in that. So I'm happily here and uh, uh, in terms of doing my thing with respect to agriculture and conservation agriculture. And if I can sneak in a trip fishing for walleye once in a while, that's the best thing for me, so. <laughs> that works out just great then. So tell me about conservation agriculture. You're, you're there in Morris, Minnesota. Minnesota um, is still known for some pretty intensive tillage. So <laughs> you were, you were uh, I'm sure when you got there, you were certainly uh, swimming upstream, we should, we should say. Is, is that a fair, fair statement? <laughs> that is a very accurate statement. And I am still swimming upstream. Um, in our part of the country, uh, 80 to 90% of the land is still tilled and it, it really hurts. And I, I've got the reputation of, of crying when we go past some of these fields. And um, it's, it's a little bit challenging. You have to be more than 50 miles away before anybody considers you an expert. And um, I, I'm um, an expert in that. And I get called for soil health meetings. But when it comes to no-till, uh, they say this, it just doesn't work. Well, we have some heavier soils, but we have some good soils. But we also have knocked about 50 to 60% of the carbon out of them over the last 100 years of intensive tillage. And now we got to struggle to maintain it and work with new ways of incorporating cover crops and diverse rotations to try to bring that carbon back. So um, I, I wish I could say there was some progress. And when I do find a little bit of a progress, um, I, I, I relish in that. I, I had one of my friends from our, our church that passed away, 94 years old. He was a plowing bee champion, and I did not know that. And we had the funeral, and everything was good. And, and after the funeral, I met one of the grandsons in the co-op. And I said, well, sorry about your grandfather. He's a good man, good farmer, and all that. And I says, yeah, are you doing any no-till work? He says, well, it happens that I am. He has about half no-till and half conventional till. And he said, this year was relatively dry. He says he got seven bushels per acre more from the no-till soybeans because of the water he saved. And I said, well, thanks. <laughs> Even though I didn't impact you anyway, I'm glad to hear that you observed that and realize that on your own. So yes, it's a real challenge. And um, I've got broad shoulders and thick skin and I'm happy to talk about these benefits. And my, my only problem is to, uh, uh, you know, find some way to take the risks out. Well. That's a real challenge and everybody's got to make decisions for themselves. Everybody has a different risk level. So uh, we're still promoting the principles of that now. And then we're trying to differentiate between conservation agriculture, the way we describe it, and the regenerative and carbon farming and, and sustainable ag and soil health farming. So um, with that, I just let you give me some specific questions or uh, rather than let me ramble on. No, no, I think that's great. So early on, when you were looking at helping farmers transition to no-till, uh, what were those some of those things that you were exploring in there? And what did you find? Uh, so some people did change, right? So yeah. why why did they change? What, what interested people uh, maybe at the beginning of your career versus, and how did that change over, you know, up to today? What What is that motivation for people to make that switch to more, conservation agriculture approaches to farming. Okay, what, what my observations have been here, and, it, and it's still true today, is there's somebody, some people that are really conscientious about 
wind erosion and soil erosion. And so they wanted to first stop that. The second is the economic component. Uh, they, they understand what's, how much diesel it takes to plow versus what to do no-till. And when you tell some of the farmers that they can reduce their input costs by 40 to 50%, they look at you and say, no, no, no. And, but once you get into that system and ease into it, as, as you indicated, it took a few years to, and you've been in it for a few years, it takes two or three years to get in, have enough confidence, and then you gotta develop the creativity in terms of balancing mother nature's uh, input to the system versus your management style and, and a lot of other things. So uh, it's, from, from my perspective, and most of the farmers that I talk to, the ones that have made this change, it's, it's either erosion control or economics of, of um, doing a lot of intensive tillage. So uh, one of the things you were looking at during that intensive tillage was just what happens, right? What happens to, to the soil, both on a uh, water basis, but you also looked a lot into carbon and what, what changes in the soil within carbon in, in tillage systems. And I think that kind of led to a, a novel way to measure. Well, walk us through that. I think that's okay. A, well, I, that I'm, I'm, I'm honored to do that. And uh, it's, it's not very often I get asked that question. Um, my, my only claim to fame from a research perspective is we discovered this big burp of carbon dioxide that goes out of the soil uh, when we mow board plow. And so uh, I, um, I had built this chamber to measure photosynthesis, canopy photosynthesis. It was 12 foot tall. We lifted up with a forklift over 12 foot tall corn and we would drop it over there and we would measure the rate of CO2 decline, which the plants were taking it up. And we called that photosynthesis. Well, we also have to understand that there's carbon dioxide coming from the soil. So we have a bare control plot with no plant impact on it. And that is uh, what we use as a, as a reference. And so we always correct for that. Well, it's not quite the same when there's roots in the soil, but it was the only way we could do it and, and call it a relative comparison. Well, we had a killing frost and I wanted to go down and measure how fast the plants died in terms of respiring away. So we went down to the field and, and made some of these measurements. And once I got my technicians going, I went back to the office and when they came up after, the, after that day's measurements, I asked them how did it go and everything went okay, except at the end, the concentrations weren't right. And I said, well, let me go see. And so I went out to the thing and I taught them to calibrate, calibrate, calibrate. Anyway, when I calibrated it at the lab, away from the field, it was good. It was normal. It was a, the concentrations then were about 350 parts per million. And I said, well, it's okay now. And uh, so what? So the next day we went down and, and uh, they started on their own. And then they said, well, Don, he called me and he says, well, that's, the concentrations are a little high. And, and they were up about 420 parts per million when they should have been about 350 parts per million. And so my mind's gone wondering what's going on. So I went down to the field and looked around and we made five measurements on our bear plot and five over the plants and everything went according to plan except the ambient concentration was up. And so when we recalibrated, we got that um, 410 parts per million versus the 350 that we should have got. And so we're looking around and we are on the experiment station property where it was an 80 acre field full of research plots and one half of it was one large field. And there the guys, the day, pre day previous day were mobile plowing in a, in a east to west direction. And um, so I said, well, let's go over on that stuff that's been plowed and put the, put the uh, chamber over that to measure the CO2 flux. Well, normally when we're on plants, the needle goes fairly slowly and we get re relatively good data. So it, we, we just collect the data for one minute, once a second. So we have 60 numbers to play with. Well, we went over there on that stuff that was plowed for 24 hours and the needle went bing. 
bing, we did it 10 times. <laughs> it just went fast because of something coming out of the soil. Then it dawned on me, well, let's go over behind where they're freshly plowing that day. And so we went over there and we do all the precautions to keep the instrument out of the exhaust of the tractor and the exhaust of any other vehicles. And we always work into the wind so we don't have to do that. Anyway, we dropped the chamber the first time it went within 10 seconds after the plow went by, and bing, the mistrum pegged. We did that 10 times and it went off that there was this tremendous amount of carbon dioxide and water vapor that was coming out of the soil. And the rest is history. We set up some experiments with different types of tillage and we found out that the tillage-induced CO2 loss was proportional to the volume of soil disturbed. We also understand that when you're disturbing the soil with various types of tillage, the diesel consumption is proportional to the volume of soil that's disturbed. And so it's a double negative from an environmental perspective and it's expensive. And so uh, that information, uh, once we got it published, we started getting invitations to talk around the world because we gave the no-till farmers one more reason to do what they were doing and helping mitigate some of the climate extremes that we are are having. So that was amazing because you've got, um, I, I remember seeing pictures of that, I think when you presented once and you know the tractor's going under, I think the, the chamber was on a forklift or something, you lowered it right down after the right. went by upwind and everything. Um, did it surprise you? I mean, wasn't that just shocking how quickly that carbon released? I mean, seconds. It, it's not, yeah, it'll kind of gradually do it all winter long until next spring, right? I mean, it was, yeah. the spike was just a huge spike rapidly. Well, there there's two possible explanations for that. And uh, one of them we call the fizz effect. When you open up a bottle of champagne, what happens? The pressure's released, the bubbles come out, and that's that gas, carbon dioxide that's in the liquid that release the, when you release the pressure, it comes out just like when you open up a can of pop or a can of, can of champagne. But you also open up the pores in the soil, you break up some aggregates, and so you expose more fresh surface area to the air. When that soil is in place, the oxygen concentration might be 14, 15%. When you plow it, turn it up, it's exposed to 21%. And that's analogous to pouring gasoline on a fire, going from a low oxygen concentration to a high oxygen concentration. And so I call it a slow burn, but it happens fairly quickly when you get this oxygen change. And so uh, it all sort of fit into place and um, we understand what, what's happening. And, and, and the other thing now that I'm really promoting is that when we disturb that soil, we are disturbing living soil systems that are there doing virtually all of the work that we want done to circulate the carbon, to circulate the nitrogen and the nutrients, to circulate the water, recycle it, all those things that we need to end up with that food product, whether it's a grain or vegetation that, that we use for our food supply. The Ag Emerge podcast is brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. The ASN team is hands-on, digging in and invested in regenerative agriculture. Along with the proper plant nutrition and biologicals to boost your soil microbiome, we provide the ideas and implementation guidance to support you on your soil health journey. So stop farming the same way and contact Ag Solutions Network today at asn.farm. That's 10 minutes, about 30 years of my life that brought me to those kind of conclusions. So at the end of the day, really, you could look at the total diesel fuel consumption within a certain geography and really know the total amount of soil disturbance that happened and almost could equate that to carbon dioxide release as that, long as it was that, going into a tillage tractor, not a combine or those kind of things. But um, that's fascinating. Well, it, that is, uh, that's the reality. And it's, 
it's just not the carbon dioxide that comes from tillage. There's also carbon dioxide that's emitted when we make ammonia fertilizer. It takes, uh, uh, what, 1.2 tons of, of carbon, carbon dioxide to make one ton of nitrogen. So when we were making synthetic fertilizers, that there's a tremendous amount of that. And then when we get that nitrate that converts to nitrous oxide, then the difference in the global warming potential jumps from one for carbon dioxide to about 300 for uh, nitrous oxide. Uh, methane's in there. Methane is more from the cattle standpoint, but uh, methane's about 20, 21 times the uh, global warming potential of carbon dioxide. So uh, there's other things in agriculture that are contributing to this, but the one thing that we found is that we've lost anywhere from 30 to 70 percent of the organic matters in the soil. And my data shows in, in uh, the data from the University of Illinois moral plots and the the uh, plots at the Missouri um, experiment station show the gradual decline. And it rhymes with my observations that it's proportional to the volume of soil disturbed. And some of the Illinois data where they had it in alfalfa for three or four years, and so it might be only tilled half of the time or whatever the rotation was in, uh, we got a slower decline in the carbon loss because we didn't till it we only tilled it uh, four times in, in 10 years, whereas with the continuous corn, it was tilled every year. The corn soybeans was tilled every year. And then the corn soybeans and wheat, I think a rotation was tilled every year. And um, so it's those kind of bits and pieces that, that all fell into place. And uh, basically I'm, I'm uh, trying to get people to understand what intensive tillage does to disturbing the soil biology that's so critical to our food security. Well, let's talk a little bit uh, about the water vapor portion of your research too, uh, especially, you know, you mentioned the young man, but and anytime you get to the west of where you are, uh, we're typically short of water all the time. Yes. So every every bit counts. And I think you, if I remember correctly, and this, is, this has been long, so forgive me if I'm wrong here, it's been a long time, but again, the proportion of soil disturbed, the total number of passes can almost equal to the uh, how many tenths of an inch um, of water that is lost. So uh, okay. pretty much every, every tillage pass, if I remember right, loses about a quarter inch of water. Um, well, uh, it, the, the, the first tillage pass in 24 hours lost more than three quarters of an inch oh, over boy. the 24 hour period. And you're exactly right. And and the water loss, again, was proportional to the volume of soil disturbed with these, these different tillage, um, types of tillage that we used. And then uh, then on the, the next day, the, the mobile plot was still larger, but it fades. And, and depending on how dry and the wind and, and the evaporation has taken place, it fades and comes in. And so that when we measured over a long term, now we, I'm talking long term here was like, I think it was 87 days during the summer months. Uh, when we looked at the, uh, the, the carbon loss, the, the cumulative carbon loss from the plow treatment was, I think it was like 2.3 times the uh, carbon loss from the no-till treatment. But immediately after tillage, it was 100 times larger than that big burp that, that we, we talked about. And then on the water portion of it too, how much of an impact in a season, if you're losing three quarters of an inch in 24 hours from a high disturbance plow effect, I mean, uh, it, it's not unheard of for multiple tillage passes for, for farmers to be losing two to four inches. And, and when you're paying $1,200 an acre foot, that adds up. Well, I, if, if you spread it out and you, you say you've got a, a rainfall event once every five days and you were tilling, uh, you you would still get a maybe an inch and a half to two inches over a three day period that it's gone, and anything you do to stir the soil just speeds that up, and and it's just not the water you're using; it's the carbon that's going out as CO two at the same time, and so you're you're breaking up the structure, 
you're setting the soil up for more compaction. You're, when you destroy the structure, you, you don't get the biopores that allows the water to infiltrate. You let out the carbon that acts like a sponge to hold some of the water there. So you decrease your volume of storage capacity. And it's, um, they're, they're small amounts, but when you start adding them up over a period of time, small amounts can add up to be something substantial and significant. But other than all those reasons, tillage is a wonderful, I can tell. <laughs> well, I, okay, I, I use, <laughs> I use uh, uh, an, an, an analogy. Um, let's see. I, I, uh, I talk about tillage as a, a biotic disturbance, and I talk about the turmoil of tillage. And so I look at the soil as a natural living system that contains a lot of life. And when it's tilled intensively, it's dramatically changed. And I think it can be considered analogous to an earthquake, an asteroid impact, a forest fire, a tsunami, a hurricane, and a tornado all rolled into one perturbation event uh, for us humans. And if that kind of disturbance happened to you two or three times a year, you would not be very happy. You would want to move on to a more peaceful place. And so that when we disturb that living soil system, it's, it's just going to take some time to recover. And the largest damage comes from the earthworms that are sliced and diced. And then the other part comes from the, the fungi that are chopped up and sliced and diced that have to regrow and regenerate their, uh, their function. So it's, um, it's, it's what it is. But I'm, I'm finding out that those little critters are so significant in doing all of this nutrient, carbon, and water cycling that uh, helps generate and supports the plant that produces the food that we eat. And, uh, and it's a great point that you make, Don, because there's, there's such an impact that they, that they have. And we've selected for a very bacterial-dominant um, soil uh, biology because uh, fungal, fungal species and, and also uh, small insects and those kind of things just don't like uh, the tornadoes tsunamis earthquakes <laughs> all happening all the time uh, but and plus those larger organisms or multicellular organisms tend to do the most heavy lifting not only for nutrients but also for a lot of research is coming out now and the these secondary uh, metabolites and, and and various plant compounds that exist within the the food that we eat so um there's been a disconnect there too. So, well, that that's one of the other benefits that we're hoping to help verify for from a food nutrition, nutrient density, or food quality. What um, Dave Montgomery and a couple of his colleagues have shown that there's an indication that the the nutrient quality and the uh, the nutrient density of some of these foods grown under enhanced organic matter levels are much better for us. And so there's there's some places where they, they can say that they've lost 40 to 50% of the nutrient value with intensive agriculture over the last 50 years. And the organic people take some credit for trying to pull that up. But with, uh, with good management in our conservation and regenerative systems, I, I think that we can bring that nutrient quality of the, of the food and treated as medicine, if you will, so that we can maintain a quality life for the long haul. So realizing the impacts that we're making when we're, when we're doing tillage and such, it evolved into the, the conservation agriculture focus that you've, that you've had throughout your career. Um, mm -hmm. what, do you, what do you see the state of uh, conservation agriculture today compared to when you started, and uh, where do you see it going? Well, I, I see some improvements, but it's... <laughs> for an old guy that's worked there all his life, it's not going fast enough for me. And I think we have to continue to uh, uh, try to, to, to get that, to preserve and protect our, our resources, which is my definition of, of conservation. And uh, I, I think there's things we can do. One is there's, there's a certain amount of miscommunication. And I use the example of conservation tillage and I wrote an article on it, it's an oxymoron. 
because when you consider the the soil as a living organism or organisms, uh, it's any kind of there's no kind of conservation with any type of tillages because it's going to disrupt your house and the structure and and all your activities. So that uh, we still have to do that. And people think that conservation tillage is no-till. Well, no-till, there's, there's a minor amount of disturbance and we have to minimize that. We're not gonna eliminate it, but we have to minimize the disturbance so that we can carry on uh, with, with these other activities. And so um, while, you know, our, our, our challenge, the way I see it is that we have a 12,000 years of traditional agriculture that had some form of a hoe or a digger that evolved into the plow. And that plowing resulted in feeding an expanding population. And I can't argue with that. It did some good, but the long-term and the lasting effects are, are resulting in some environmental degradation, loss of carbon. Some of that carbon is in the atmosphere as a result of agriculture. And uh, it's, it's causing some of these climate extremes that I think um, we got to address if we're going to continue as a society. So where do you, where do you see it going from here? Um, what, were, what are going to be some of the drivers to adopting uh, better or more conservation-oriented farming techniques? Well, I, I think the first driver is going to be the reduction in input cost. If the farmers are going to accept taking some nitrogen that's captured by the cover crops. Uh, we're going to maintain our soil in place. Uh, if you look at the Gulf of Mexico, some of your soil may be there. And I think we, we've got to keep it where it is because if it takes anywhere from 750 to 1500 years to make one inch of soil, uh, we're losing it faster than mother nature can make it. I see things happening and, and people are seeing some of this take place, but we got to start paying more attention to the detail. And the guys that are 100% are no-till and want to plant green and do all the things we can to maintain that plant capturing carbon, we're going to, we're going to uh, uh, address some of the problems. It's, it's not going as fast as I would like to see it, but we're going in the right direction. And part of this podcast is for me to try to help educate other farmers on uh, why we need to speed up some of this because we're running out of time unless we do something to start controlling the population. So uh, we, we have some challenges, but I'm optimistic that we're not going to go to hell in the handbasket uh, for a few years yet. So you mentioned some things there just briefly that can be done that make a significant change. No-till, planting green. What in the world's that? Well, I, I I really had to struggle with that when I watched these guys in Pennsylvania doing that through that thick biomass stuff. And uh, what they're doing is they're getting the second following crop going uh, with a minimum time loss for capturing carbon. And so I'm I'm all for trying to keep something growing as long as biologically possible to maximize the capture of carbon through the process of photosynthesis. And I'm a, I got carbon biases, so this is what I promote. And I, I think that whatever we can do to keep something growing on that surface, capturing carbon, recycling that carbon, recycling the nutrients, and oh, by the way, give us a few ears of corn or a few soybeans out of that process to feed ourselves and feed the animals. Uh, that's what we need to do. And so we, we must, get around this attitude that living in Minnesota, you can't grow anything six months out of the year, but we got to push mother nature's limits a little bit. And a few people are doing that because if, if Gabe Brown can do it uh, 200 miles north of me, anybody should be able to do it. So. Yeah. It's amazing how mother nature did that before, uh, before farming, you know, every, every opportunity there was to be growing something uh, she was, she was growing it at that, you know, in the past. So, mm -hmm. um, so how do you do that then? need to look at also diversifying our crop scheme, don't we? Right, and then also develop some some new species. Um, and the genetic manipulation, as when I moved here about 48 years ago, I was on the northern 
edge of the Corn Belt. Now the northern edge of the Corn Belt's up on the Canadian border uh, because of, they found varieties that, that can tolerate it and get a re respectable yield. And so we, we've got to continue that. And then we just got to start fine tuning these systems and working with, with nature on when she allows us to do it and how we recover if she gives us a, a curveball. And um, so it's, it's a continuous learning process. And, and um, as I sit back and look at my 50 years of whatever about science, uh, I, I, I still know very little about what mother nature's doing to control and provide the resources that, that we utilize in agricultural production. Well, the first time we had an opportunity to meet each other was in uh, Central Valley of California, probably 20 years ago, um, or 18 at least. Um, our mutual friend, Dr. Jeff Mitchell, UC Davis, he roped you into coming out there. Um, I'm not sure. He he he. It's amazing how he gets people to do things, isn't it? <laughs> but um, I, I remember going around different fields with you, and uh, uh, we were looking at at the time was a piece of equipment that was pretty popular. Um, that was a combination tool, and that everybody was all excited because they thought, "Oh, conservation tillage, this is great. We're just making one pass in the field instead of eight or nine. And if I remember right, you looked at the machine, you're like, "Well, that's doing the same disturbance as all eight or nine of the machines before, and you're pulling it with a five hundred horsepower tractor. You're still doing the same thing. and i I, <laughs> I think everybody in the in the field was kind of, oh. Shoot. <laughs> well, Talk to about what uh, you you think, uh, you know, the intensity of, of uh, tillage and, and those kind of things in, in the Central Valley and and how that's how that's changed and um, those things over time. Well, Jeff, Jeff Mitchell has, has spent his career out there trying to help those guys and and he's helped some of them, but, but he's frustrated that um, that. If they, if they, some of them think they have to do some tillage just to either incorporate fertilizers or loosen the soil for root distribution. And uh, part of that challenge is they have to work with those 408 species that uh, not everybody's got all the detailed research or as much research as we might have on, on corn, soybeans, and cotton in, in the eastern part of the country. Um, it's, it's, um, it's a real challenge. I, I have a specific example um, here in in, um, in in Minnesota. We have an, an a very innovative group of farmers that are growing carrots in Minnesota, so we don't have to transport them from California to here. And they're using sandy soils, and but they're now they're getting into some of the heavier soils. And I was talking to one of the fellows that works for them as a as a tractor operator. And they till the soil three times over 18 inches deep. They go north, south, east, west, and then on a diagonal, all going to the same depth. So they want those little aggregates that the roots come in, the, the carrot roots come in through that, grow through there real easily. They don't want anything to make a little curve in the carrot because that's a waste product to them. And this is the way they rationalize it. So I'm trying to think, well, what can I do to help those guys out? And one of the things I'm thinking about is, is trench. I want to minimize the soil disturbed to accomplish what they want. I want that carrot to go 18 inches deep, but it does it, does it need 12, 15 inches wide in a row, or can I get by with three or four inches in a row? Save them a little diesel fuel, save them a little destruction of the soil and the microbes and whatever. So um that that's a little bit of a challenge so now the same group they they have are going very very successful but the people they supply want carrots 365 days a year so now they bought some land down in georgia on some sandy soils and they're going to establish processing plant there and grow carrots in that area so that between the two locations at least for now they'll have year-round supply of carrots um for the for the eastern markets. So now I got distracted and I'm 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 um I think I got off your original question, but um could you remind me what, what we, I was no, I just, talking about? I was just talking about when you're uh working with California farmers there and, and talking about the intensity of tillage, just um kind of what what the impacts have been made over time and and 
you know, from my experience, there has been impacts made. Uh, we've dramatically reduced it. Part of it has gone because of drip tape, right? So yes, you know, when yeah. the tape's in the soil, you can't disturb it as much. Otherwise, <laughs> you get a real problem with your tape. Yeah. Uh, but there are other people, you know, moving for cost savings reasons, but but also just for um, management improvement reasons. Easier, okay. you know, more beds are going to more standardized sizes between your 408 crops like you're talking yeah. about. So it has made a difference and it's a large root gr uh, work group. And I know you and you and Jeff work together well and have for a long time. And, and in fact, you're telling me you, you guys even have an appointment tomorrow. Uh, yeah, that's, that's right. Ross, so well, uh, along those same lines, I, uh, there was a ARS egg engineer out there named Lyle Carter mm -hmm. and he was uh, big on deep tillage and he gave me a list of 24 reasons why farmers do tillage. And I wanted to cite him to give him credit for that. But he also has in his PowerPoint presentation as a, I don't know whether it's a D8 or D9 caterpillar pulling one subsoil shank that looks like a tile plow to go five or six feet deep to break up subsoil compaction. And it did what it was supposed to do, but it took a lot of diesel and if you didn't take care of it and maintain it with good plant management, you were back to your same compaction problem in two or three years again. And and uh, we we have to find a better way way to, to to manage that. And I'm hopeful that we can use the plant root systems as the disturbance tools that we need to maintain the plants and recycle the nutrients and the carbon uh, efficiently. And, and, and get away from the mechanical tillage that uh, we, we have learned to use and abuse as far as uh, the, the soil life is, is concerned. Well, let's, um, let's visit a little bit about, uh, we brought it up earlier, but let's dive into, you know, a lot of, a lot of people want to do the right thing and a lot of consumers want to support the right thing. Uh, it's hard to know what the right thing is. We are inundated with terms as farm farmers or as consumers or everyone in between from, you know, my favorite thing is farm fresh eggs. Well, what are they not from a farm and, a, and they're old and moldy, you know, so it's uh, <laughs> one of those things. But, you know, our conservation agriculture, conservation tillage, which we've talked about, um, you know, then there's the whole organic, they're sustainable. There was soil quality at one time and soil quality indexing then it kind of morphed into soil health right yeah and now we've iterated into regenerative and yes. on the horizon to come is resilient uh and i don't know what the next one is i i don't have my crystal ball out so let's <laughs> let's talk about about a little bit about there are similarities here in what we're trying to accomplish right there there yes. are similarities uh there is some lack of definition in certain things there is greenwashing in certain things and then there's yes. uncertainty in things right yes so and there's some miscommunications because of limited understanding right. i i don't think much of it is intentional mm -hmm. but at uh that there's people words are powerful people use words differently and one of the things we were discussing yesterday with jeff and uh and fellow tom goddard from canada is that regenerative agriculture is a little bit ambiguous in, in how it describes things. And, and so we say that, well, that's just got a little bit less of a science foundation if it's not clear and concise than, than the meaning. Whereas we think in conservation agriculture, we go by three principles rather than five. Um, and, and, but we, we think there's a better science foundation and there's more clear description of the processes when we talk about conservation versus regeneration. And, uh, and so the, 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 the vagueness in, in the use of the term regenerative, uh, when you talk about regenerating the soil, uh, it, it's not clear to me whether you're regenerating the soil minerals or whether you're regenerating the soil biology. And my understanding in the soil formation process Regenerating those minerals takes a lot of time of nature and the acids that are formed by the plants that do some of this dissolution to release these nutrients. I think 95% of our nutrient and fertility is managed by that plant that 
has the nutrients in it. And then when it does its job and, and starts to decompose, it releases that in a timely manner for the next generation of plants. And so 95% of our nutrient management should be in the management of that plant biomass. And any new nutrients that comes from the dissolution of the mineral materials is an added plus, and we have to maintain that. But when, and when we go from one year to the next, uh, we can't wait on mother nature to supply those. And so we put it out of the bag or find some other way to use cover crops to uh, come in and, and hold some of those nutrients till our agronomic crop comes along. Uh, so tell me about the three, you were saying three principles in conservation agriculture. What, what three do they focus, do okay, focus on? Okay, the first one is minimum soil disturbance. Yep. The second one is continuous biomass cover. And I want you to note that I did not say residue cover. Mm -hmm. I want the farmers to understand that that thing they call residue is 45% carbon, maybe two or 3% nitrogen, a little bit of potassium and calcium. And that's not residue, that's stuff that's left over, it's trash you don't wanna do anything with. So I want them to call it biomass. And I want that there to protect the soil surface so the raindrop impact doesn't it cuts down on evaporation. It protects the microbes by mi mitigating the temperature extremes that are there. And it does a lot for us. And UV kind of things. Yeah. Yes. And then the, the third thing is in the diversity in terms of crop rotations and the addition of cover crop mixes. Corn and soybeans is not a rotation in my book. Corn, soybeans, wheat, alfalfa comes back to being close to a good rotation. And the reason I say that is that when we have diversity in the rotation and diversity within the species in that rotation, we have, <clears throat> excuse me, we have all these opportunities for synergy to take place. And I, as I indicated before, the, my definition of synergistic is one plus one equals three in terms of impact. And if you have a limited number of species to interact, you're going to have a limited number of synergistic interactions. And so the more you have, the better it is for everybody and the total system. And I think that's what I call nature's way of looking at these systems. Uh, nature's this large community that includes that little bit of bacteria and that fungi and amoeba down in the soil, all the way up to those dinosaurs that we experienced well, we didn't experience, but we're at least we we think we know about them, and so um, we're we're all part of this community, and and nature's got to provide the resources for all the living critters in the in the in this community, and we're just one one component. And um, so far, we have enough intellect to keep us going, and and uh, hopefully it'll allow us to go generations further ahead. So. Really, and, and those three principles are aligned with what the five soil health principles are. I mean, they're, they're three of the five. The only real difference is, uh, you know, the living root, you know, continuous living root. That's kind of splitting the, splitting the hairs there. But, you know, there is my favorite in there, Don, and that's integrating okay. livestock, getting grazing livestock back on the land because uh, th those bison did a pretty nice job for us in the past, you know. That, okay, that, and, that, I, that, and I understand that. all those soil we could, that we get to plow and ruin, see? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll get well, hate mail after um, this podcast. That's okay. <laughs> and, if, and, and I understand because that with, with the cover crops providing additional forage and the diversity of forage and the timing of the forage that's available for them, um, I, 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 I'm not a cattle guy, so I, I don't really promote it that much, but I understand the benefits because it is one component of the diversity that spreads their own manure and recycles the nutrients more effective. Yep. We got to figure out how to stop the burping and farting and then uh, find some way to handle that. And, and when we do that, uh, it is. I, I, but one, <laughs> one of the things that's got me going on this now when you mentioned the living root system as long as possible i'm i'm in the process of trying to change one of these principles and i want to change the second principle about continuous biomass cover and i want to change that to living plant functions 
because that living plant is the first step in converting solar energy to biochemical energy that we can use, our animals can use to carry on these activities. And so that plant is very important in capturing the carbon because then it allows some of the carbon to go into the grain that we eat. It allows some of that carbon to go into the root and come out as root exudates to feed that soil biology that's there. And so if I want a continuous living root, I need a continuous living plant. Now that plant is also capturing carbon, it's transpiring water, it's shading the soil, it's producing that ear. And I'm trying to put together this list of things that the plant does for us so that we understand the plant is a major resource. And when I come up through school, we, we talked about soil, water, and air, or atmosphere, the soil plant atmosphere system. And now I want to talk about soil, the soil fauna. I want to talk about the plant because of its importance. Then we have the water and uh, the atmospheric stuff with the nitrogen and, and CO2 in the atmosphere. And then I want to add to that the biodiversity component and amplify that because of the synergistic relationship. So um, I'm in the process of running this by a few of my colleagues uh, to make sure I'm not going off the deep end and see if that won't strengthen conservation agriculture a little bit more and give a more explicit reason for why we want to talk about that because it's about capturing the energy, producing the energy, and using the energy <clears throat> all for food production uh, for us for us in the long run. And it's just not thing, but that, that process of photosynthesis <clears throat> starts the food chain for all living things on the earth. And so yeah. Now, if I can throw one more thing in there for you to consider, and, and maybe you already planned this as part of your, your inclusion there, to go even deeper off the deep end, okay? <laughs> uh, as an example, mm -hmm. I, I just thought of this the other day. When you, you look at a corn plant, let's say we plant that uh, corn plant um, down here in Illinois, we're, we're April 25th, uh, let, let's just say May 1, because it's an easier date to do the math here. Okay. Put that corn seed in the ground. When do you finally start to get some sort of a, a reasonable root system underneath that corn plant? You know, you take about seven to ten days to get it out of the ground. You're running on a no, you're running on the seed root system before you. You know, you're at V3 when you start to initiate the the nodal root system and finally get some yeah. root biomass. <clears throat> so really, you're almost to the first of June, where you're finally starting to get some significant root biomass going on. So now we're we're getting some significant carbon sugar leakage into the soil correct okay. about, about june 1 <clears throat> let's say we tassel on around about july let's just say july 21 okay okay well what happens at tassel <clears throat> you know we we've got a new carbohydrate sink now in the ear and you know all those poor interns and multiple studies will show that root volume declines once you hit tassel right it, it yeah. there's less carbohydrate going to the root it actually shrinks and redeposits it. So if you look at it, we really only have about seven to eight weeks of actively growing uh, roots that are pumping carbohydrates into the soil in, on a corn crop only, in a 300 or a 52 week year. And isn't that rather amazing? Well, it, it, it is amazing. And, uh, but what, what Mother Nature does is when she's done flushing that carbon through the soil into the roots through the exudates mm -hmm. and then divert some of it into that ear or the grain mm -hmm. is that there'll be some <clears throat> some of those roots that will be decomposed by the active uh, activity of the microbes in the soil and so we haven't lost all of that no. but when that supply runs low then those night uh, those microbes start to hurt and and they, we got to find some way to energize them and uh, that's where this, this we, we have to start thinking about energy flow through the soil plant atmosphere system. And so that energy comes in from the, from the sun as solar. It's converted to biochemical energy through the process of photosynthesis. The plant then takes that and distributes it, some to the roots, some to the leaves, some to the ears, 
And those things change as you go through the growing season. And at the end, when it's mature, the seeds are mature, we harvest it and export it from the field. Mm -hmm. And somehow when we export that, that's one of the first rules that we, we of, of Mother Nature's rules that we break. Mm -hmm. But we have to export it because we got to feed the population. And so we got to find some way to offset the carbon and the nutrients that are exported with additional inputs. Mm -hmm. This is where the cover crops are coming in. This is where manure management is coming back, I think. And there's ways that, that we need to do that better if we want to stay keep in balance. Because right now we're on a slow downhill grade with, with everything that we're doing in terms of exploiting, exporting that carbon and the nutrients from the landscape. And Mother Nature just not cannot generate them enough from the, the geological material that we have to work with. My bigger point was if we're growing monocrops with no cover crops, we have seven to eight weeks of optimum carbohydrate putting into the soil over a potential anywhere, depending on your latitude, 24 to 34 weeks that we could be doing it. So when we add cover crops to that mix, right, we're, we're adding another, depending on the cover crop, the planting timing and such, another four to eight weeks of carbohydrate sinking into the soil. But we, I think we need to really look at polycrops or something to where, just like nature is, cool season grasses, warm season grasses, you know, yeah. all stages of, of, uh, of plant and architecture exist, you know, in nature on a, any given area. And if we could get a way to optimize that carbo, carbon sequestration into the soil, any time that we can be growing something, you know, monocrop worse. Monocrop with cover crops is the next next worst. But if we could get to, you know, double cropping, companion cropping, polycropping, that we can have this constant carbon dioxide, you know, sequestration into the soil, building building carbon for future generations. So I think, you know, I I would I really think that needs to be looked at because we all we all think we're doing a great job with checking the box. Oh, grew a cover crop, you know. <laughs> Oh, yep, had a had corn. That's got a high carbon crop. But reality is, is we we only took advantage of the sunlight, the rainfall, and the ability to put carbon into the soil for a yep. very short period of time. Yep, and the, uh, you're you're spot on with that. Because all 100, and... 110 day corn don't put carbon into the soil for 110 days. You know that's from <laughs> germination to black layer. Yep. There, there's there's 55 days in the middle there where it really puts it into the soil. But by the time you get the black layer, probably 20 to 30 percent of that carbon that was going coming out of the roots is gone into the ear. Right. And but we we eat that ear. We don't eat the roots, but our microbes in the soil need that energy source. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. I I I want to. I'm trying to promote this conservation agriculture systems as carbon centric agriculture. My, and that's part of my biases because of what I've discovered with respect to tillage. And so I have a, a couple of pictures and using the metaphor of gears. I have three gears. One of them is minimum soil disturbance. The other one's diverse rotations and cover crops. And the other one is um, um, continuous biomass cover. Those three gears are driven by a central gear it's black and represents the carbon cycle. So that the carbon cycle is driving all three of these other gears as part of this conservation system. And so I, I think that um, with, with better carbon management and understanding the importance of that, uh, we, we can do better. Unfortunately, nobody knows how to put a value, a dollar value on a pound of carbon. Uh, <laughs> We're trying to find some of that in the carbon markets, and it's a, it's just a real challenge to figure out how to do that. Um, and so I'm I'm hoping that um, uh, I I want to maximize the carbon input into this system because that is the primary energy source that drives the whole food production system. If you don't have carbon energy flowing through the system, if you lock it up by sequestering it in soil somebody's going to hurt along the way and we're not going to be as efficient in food production as we should be. 
Well, um, what other what other things should we have talked about while we're together, Don? And uh, well, first off, um, for being retired, you don't seem very retired. I'm just just saying. <laughs> but uh, what what are some other things we should have visited about while we were together today? Uh, <clears throat> well, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, okay, one one point is, um, and I'm not trying to be critical of you, but um, uh, is I'm having trouble with the word sequestration versus storage. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to develop a science foundation for uh, storage of carbon in soils. Mm -hmm. And when you think about the soil as a living system, and that living system has to have energy, it has to have three meals a day. And we must try to provide that <clears throat> if we want them workers in that factory to be efficient for us in recycling the nutrients, carbon, and all of that. <clears throat> and <clears throat> if you sequester that means my understanding of the definition of sequester is lock it up, set it aside so that it doesn't interact with any other extraneous pattern. So mm -hmm. when the judge sequesters the jury, you're isolated and <clears throat> that. And that's my understanding of, uh, and if you do that, sequester that in the soil, then how are your bacteria and your fungi and your insects and that going to exist? Mm -hmm. I prefer the term storage. And so when we want to pay the farmers for carbon credits, I understand the need to sequester it so that you can account for it all. But in our living soil systems, it just doesn't happen that way because that carbon is the primary energy source. Yeah. And so um, we have to <clears throat> find some way to keep the energy coming, to keep the food coming off the end of that, that food chain by managing the carbon. And so uh, when we talk about carbon credits, I'm all for incentivizing enhanced carbon management but it's one of the most difficult things to do. And I think you asked me one of the things that uh, I, I thought was unusual and was an aha moment is that when we look at corn biomass, after you take the grain off, and if it's tilled in the soil, you come back a year later and 70% of that carbon and that thing is gone back to the atmosphere. It decomposes that fast. And if you wait, maybe two years, you can find a few corn cobs and maybe a few stocks, but you, it, it's, the bulk of it decomposes very quickly. And that's because those bugs need that energy to carry out their activities. So I'm, I'm having trouble understanding how we can sequester carbon and still maintain a balance in nature and a food product that comes off of the end of the, the production line that we all can survive on. Uh, I, I would rather them find some way to quantify it, but it's there's no metric that's uh, economical enough, rapid enough, or uh, sample enough without making the, the soil a, a, a block of cottage cheese to, uh, to get the samples. So uh, I'm, I'm trying to understand how we can uh, do that. One other thing is um, I want, I'd like to promote the idea of systems thinking. Uh, in science, we, we do a lot of stuff with the linear relationships, but with systems thinking, we got to look at the big picture and try to understand what's going on. And so when we're managing these complex systems, we have, you can use the analogy of a, of a picture puzzle, and a piece of that puzzle is one little system in the big system. And our challenge is to put these little pieces of the puzzle together to connect the big picture that gives us something that we can utilize or enjoy in, in using that uh, those those concepts. And so uh, I'm not an engineer, but I talk about mechanical systems from my engineering friends. <laughs> and I think that we need to <clears throat> change our thinking from mechanical thinking <clears throat> and engineering to ecological thinking and engineering, understanding the biology of the system. Uh, 
and then uh, farming in nature's way, we got to try to mimic Mother Nature. She's been doing it for 4.3 billion years. And the farther we get away from the way she's doing it, the more problems we are having. And, and so one of the reasons for not tilling <laughs> is not disturbing the soil, not disturbing this large population of, of living critters that support our lifestyle. And um, I, I think that, um, that that's important and we, we have to understand it. And it's, I understand the feeling of driving a 400 horsepower tractor uh, and the, the feeling of seeing that black diesel go and the feeling of looking back and see how straight your furrows are. Uh, but I'm, I'm coming to the understanding that that is doing more damage than we can tolerate and we have to find some way, an alternate way to do it. And whether it's conservation agriculture, regenerative agriculture, or soil health farming, we're thinking in the right direction. We just gotta get that speeded up to the point where we don't destroy all of our resources uh, because it takes mother nature too long to rebuild them. Very well said, sir. I appreciate uh... I appreciate all that you've done to contribute to our understanding of the need for these systems and and the impacts that conservation agriculture can have. Um, really appreciate all all the foundational research that you've that you've contributed that uh, uh, is foundational to you know the uh, modern look at what we're doing and how we can do it better. So, well, I'm I, I'm pleased that you understood some of that, and uh, yeah. I just wish I had known that a little earlier because I've been. I would have been funneling more information to you because you have more impact and more exposure than I do as a scientist. And um, uh, and then you help force me into more practical aspects of it. So I don't use the, the jargon of scientists and, and sort of overwhelm you with the vocabulary. But um, it's rewarding to know that you understand pretty much all of this and uh, uh, I give you an attaboy for that. Well, I appreciate that. We we uh, appreciate that recognition, but we'll do our best to keep those gears turning in the right direction. Okay, well, and not allowing anybody to put it in reverse. <laughs> we can't afford that. So, <laughs> all right. Well, thank you, Don. I I really appreciate your your time today, and again, appreciate all the uh, huge body of work and and influence that you've had in, in agriculture worldwide, uh, throughout your career and throughout your your retirement. So um, that's uh, that's awesome to see you continue to uh, to do the things that you're doing. So well, that's good. So I thank you for the opportunity. And, and if anybody has any questions, I'm happy to talk with them too. All right. Thank you, Don. Powerful stuff. Wanting to aspire to inspire before he expires. Well, I'm inspired to be like Dr. Rakowski, and I hope you are inspired to consider adopting important soil health practices. And as always, if you'd like to learn more about what we're doing to help growers adopt those soil health practices, well, check out our website at asn.farm. And there you can click on links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. There's a lot of great things happening and always something to learn. Thanks for listening.